Good morning, everyone. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The portion of scripture that we will be studying this morning is Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. These verses can be found on page 489 of the Blue ESV Bibles. Those Bibles are located in the back pocket seat cover in the seat in front of you. And as always, those Bibles are not only available for you, for you to use during the service, but they are available for you to take home if you do not have a Bible um, with you already. Once again, we'll be reading Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot and will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen uh, up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But, hold on. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, All sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he said, and he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Thus says God's word. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word. God, it's living and active. It's it's more powerful, more uh, God, devastating to our sin and selfishness and pride than any two-edged sword, Lord. It, div- it divides truth and error. It divides soul and spirit. And Lord, we thank you as we stand before the, the power of your word as it's wielded by the Holy Spirit. And so God, we pray that you would just cut away from us all forms, every manner of our unbelief. Holy Spirit, Spark a fire in us to believe. Expose us, Lord, where we have failed to believe. Where we have, God, done by our actions and our thoughts what we never would have done with our words. And that is to doubt you, to call you a liar. Lord, help us to believe this morning. Draw us deeper. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. And I pray, Lord, that in spite of all my many sins and all my many weaknesses, all my failings and my faults, Lord God, that you would somehow use this moment to bring about your glory. God, that you would 
work not just through me, but in spite of me to let your gospel ring forth from this pulpit. Lord, I thank you for every ear that's going to hear, and I pray that you would enable those ears to hear on a level that is far more than physical. Thank you for all of this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. This is a long passage, 15 verses, and more than just being a long passage, it has a lot going on. There's a lot of movement in this passage. Um, But what I'm hoping, even though we could have preached two or three separate messages from this one passage, I hope that you see a common theme that runs through all 15 verses. Though on the surface they may not seem that connected, what I hope and what is my goal today is to help you see that there's a lot more connectedness in these kind of different stories, these movements, than may at first appear obvious. And so for this very reason, we're going to tackle this moving, dramatic moment in Jesus' ministry in just one setting. Or should I should say, we're going to really try hard to do that. So we're actually going to begin, and when I, when I get into the you know, breaking this down for you. We're actually going to begin in the middle of our text, and then we'll move on from there to the verses that Raven read us at the beginning and the verses at the end, since they, as I said, involve a common misconception about Jesus. Everything you just read, all of it, involves misconceptions about Jesus, and there's a common thread through all those misconceptions. And that that common thread is rooted in the shared unbelief of the scribes and Pharisees, and of Jesus' family. Now, we I, I would dare say, there may be exceptions, and, and we're glad you're here if you are the exception of this, but I would dare say that most people in this room right now would, would testify, they would, they would um, assert that they are Christians, that they're followers of Jesus Christ. But what I want you to understand is that unbelief, this idea of unbelief, literally affects all of our lives. It, it is, it's the defining mark of our fallen nature, our sinful um, nature. It's the, it's the fingerprints. Unbelief is the fingerprints of the original sin from our father Adam that's all over us. And what it, what, the, the way it shows up, uh, this unbelief, it can manifest as a militant refusal to believe Christ is who he says he is, or that what Christ has said is true isn't really true. See, now, we talk in the extreme forms of this, we could be describing radical atheism, or people who are so woke that they try to cram the gospel into the culture's mold just to make it palatable to their fallen senses. Unbelief keeps people, it literally blinds people to seeing the power and the beauty of God. Paul talks about it. He says that if if their eyes are blinded, they're blinded by the God of this world and they cannot see what God is doing. Great example of this from the scriptures is Christ when he went to the the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth and and he began to speak and was doing a couple of miracles 
And the people in the, in the synagogue began to be very offended with Jesus. Because Jesus came in, just like he did in the synagogue of Capernaum, and he spoke with authority. And he spoke as, as you know, someone who knew what he was talking about. And it wasn't a bluff. He wrote the book. But the people were offended because this man was the same kid who had grown up in their midst. He said, whoa, 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 whoa. Isn't this Joseph, the carpenter's son? And now he's talking to us about the kingdom of God? Well, we know your brothers, dude. We know your sisters. We're not that impressed with you. And Matthew says this, this incredible statement in, in uh, chapter 13, verse 58. He says, And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So unbelief kept them from seeing the glory of God revealed right in their midst. Now, so we talk about that, and that obviously to most of us as Christians seems very offensive, this radical shake your fist in the face of God form of unbelief. But what I want you to understand, this is more what I'm concerned about right now, is that there also is what seems to be what I'll call soft unbelief. It, it, and, and we find this commonly even in believers. Now think about what I just said. Unbelieving believers. Does that sound like an oxymoron or what? Like jumbo shrimp, right? I mean, it's like, it's like, how can that, those two realities coexist? It's when we believe that God's grace isn't enough for our specific sin. We've gone too far. We've done too much. It's when we feel like God sitting in his lofty heavens is ignorant of or powerless in the middle of our suffering. That's soft unbelief. It's not, we don't, would never, those people who struggle with things like that would never shake their fist at the heavens and say, you're not real, or any terrible thing like that. But they say, you're real, you exist, but I don't think you can help me. I don't think you can reach me. See, but what I want you to understand is soft, as I'm calling it, unbelief, only seems like soft unbelief because the refusal to take God at his word causes as much long-term destruction to your soul over time as the strongest form of atheism. As the strongest defiance of God's word, the result over time is exactly the same. And that's why when we see this in the disciples in several occasions, Jesus deals with it strongly. He doesn't just say, ah, that's only human. They would feel that way. Remember when he, when he was asleep in the boat and they freak out? The disciples just have a total just conniption fit. And they say, Jesus, you want us to die? What's the matter with you? Why are you taking a nap? And he stands up and he commands the storm to be, to, to, uh, uh, to, to be still. He does not turn around. After that amazing miracle, he doesn't turn around, pat the disciples on the shoulder and say, they're there. I know that was scary. No. He says, where was your faith? Why did you not believe? I'm in the boat. That boat is not going down when I'm in there, fellas. Jesus did not play patty cake with soft unbelief. Even after his resurrection, this incredible account from Mark's gospel, chapter 16, which we'll get there in seven or eight years. Um, in, in, in Mark 16, 14, he says, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven disciples as they were reclining at the table. This is after the resurrection. And he rebuked them for their unbelief 
and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after they had after he had risen. Now, what's happening here? The the women who went to the tomb came back and said, "Oh my gosh, he's alive!" And they they say, "Oh, it couldn't be. Somebody had to steal, so I had to move them." What had happened was now. I want you to understand the picture here. It wasn't just they didn't believe some women. The gospel had been proclaimed to them. What is the essence of the gospel? Jesus is alive, right? That's the essence of the gospel. And they didn't believe. And Jesus did not take into account their circumstances, the amazing uh, difficulty of believing such a thing. He had told them at least three times and recorded in Scripture that he would rise again, and they didn't believe. Soft unbelief. We make excuses for it. Well, it's just hard to believe that a guy rises from the dead. But I told you, I told you, they did not believe the word of God. So, before we proceed and get into the meat of this passage, I want to quickly do a flyover of verse 20, the, the first verse that Raven read. Now, just to uh, bring you back up to speed, Jesus has had now five major controversies with the with the Pharisees. They are not coexisting peacefully. The, the Pharisees and the Herodians are conspiring to put him to death. Um, and sometime during this time period in Jesus' life, he spends the night in prayer. He appoints the 12 disciples to be with him and then later to be sent out by him into apostolic preaching ministries. And all that this happened while Jesus himself was on a preaching tour around the coast of Galilee. But Mark tells us in verse 20 that he went home. Where is home? Well, we know from chapter 1 that home was in Capernaum. So he's made his way back to Capernaum. That's where he's living at the time. And what happens there in Capernaum is that the crowds that we've seen over and over, I think I've mentioned the crowds every single week since we started this study, the the crowds that are seeking healing and deliverance continue to press him. They're demanding so much of his time and attention that both he and the disciples, Mark tells us, couldn't even take time for a proper meal to refresh themselves. So Jesus' popularity is at an all-time high. And, and it's so much so that, that it's interfering with him just taking care of his physical body. Now, in this busy season, Mark tells us that the scribes, the Pharisees, we talked about a couple weeks ago, appear and they make an absolutely scandalous accusation. These, now, these aren't local scribes. These aren't just the guys that manage the, the local synagogue. They are from the main office. These are the bigwigs. They're from the, the, the capital city. They're from Jerusalem. They're, they're from the seat of both political power and religious authority for the Jews. There's a lot of buzz around Jesus' ministry, and they need to come down and make the official statement, make a press release about what those who are the smartest guys in the room think about this guy that's doing so much and they hadn't come this is really interesting they came with all the other crowds that we read about last week that were coming from the north south east and west but they had not come to receive anything from christ they'd come to put this upstart wannabe prophet from the sticks in his place as they watched him though they saw healings lepers were cleansed Fevers and diseases vanished with a word or a touch. Even paralytics, they saw this, began to walk. And the people, and people with dead, useless limbs regained their use. More than that, unclean spirits recognized him. They called him by name and they submitted to him. They kept silent when he ordered them to do so and, and they came out as soon as he bade them to depart. 
so the, the scribes looking at this had no choice but to deem that his miracles and his deliverances were absolutely legitimate. But there was a problem for them. See, Jesus also seemed to have absolutely flagrant disregard for the traditions of the elders concerning things like their Sabbath rules or protocol in the synagogue. He even dared to proclaim that a man was forgiven, which is something only God can do. It's almost like he thought he was God himself. And surely, surely, with all this stuff, all the trouble they had been giving him, surely no truly righteous man would dispense with the lofty interpretations of the scribes and Pharisees. Heaven forbid, right? But being unable to deny the reality of his miracles, yet also unable, on the other hand, to overlook his careless handling of their traditions, the Pharisees come to the most absurd conclusion to reconcile these two difficulties. It's one of the most blasphemous things you'll read in Holy Scripture. Mark 3.22, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So their accusation, let that sink in, their accusation against the Son of God is that he is in league with Satan. And more than that, he's using the devil's power to put forth a beneficial illusion, make it look like he's doing something good without any real substance behind it. Now again, this is important. They never once accused Jesus of fake Miracles. This is not Todd White pulling on people's legs, okay? This is, this is something that is like, uh, uh, you know, the verifiable, legitimate, and, and no, no one accuses of anything else. They believe that these miracles are genuine. They witnessed the inexplicable happen right before their eyes, but they attribute the, those things to darkness and not light, to evil and not good. And this is important to, in saying that he is possessed by Beelzebub, some of your Bibles might read Beelzebub, um, that's important. Beelzebub is um, the, the god of Ekron from second, the book of Second Kings. And Beelzebub is, uh, you've probably heard this term, especially if you read William Golding's novel, Beelzebub is the lord of the flies. And what that term means is that he is the lord of all filth. Now think about that. There, there's a little controversy about how this word should be translated. But, but if he's saying that, that he's in league with Beelzebub, they're, they're associating the most holy with the most filthy. The, the, the maggoted, you know, flies and things of that nasty nature that hang around on dung piles. He, they're saying, Jesus, you're the spiritual equivalent of that. But the word also might be Beelzebul. And Beelzebul is, is, it doesn't sound as graphic, but it's even worse because Beelzebul literally means the Lord of all the demonic realm. So they believe that the prince of darkness, Satan himself, is the source of all of Jesus' divine power. But these theological experts forgot one very important thing that is is obvious throughout Scripture. Satan is absolutely incapable 
of miraculous works. Now, did I just say that Satan never does anything that can amaze people who see what he does? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. But miracles, a true defined miracle, requires a couple of things. Number one, it requires creative power. And, and Satan has none of that. In fact, in all of the creative, or in all of, not the creative, or in all of the order of everything, the spiritual and physical realms, only God has creative power. And that's what miracles require. But also, miracles, by their definition, are for a beneficial result in human flourishing. And Satan can't do anything with a beneficial result. He can't do anything with for human flourishing. In fact, Jesus tells us in John chapter 10 that all he does is come to lie, to steal, and to destroy. The devil, what he does, when you hear all these brag, you know, these occultists bragging about the power that was revealed, what, what Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 2.9, is he calls it false or lying signs and wonders. There, there are signs and wonders that are engineered to deceive, not to bless, not to bring human flourishing. They don't result in blessing, in fact, but damnation. And so the, so I want you to see what's happening here. The scribes are seeing all this. They're calling these miracles legitimate. But by attributing them to the power of the devil, the smartest guys in the room are showing a higher regard for Satan's power than they are for the power of God. Do you see how deep their sin ran? How blasphemous this was, the thing that they said? Now listen, would the devil ever do anything that results in people trusting God or praising Him or forsaking their sin? Of course not. But when Jesus healed people and delivered people, they trusted God, they praised Him, and they forsook their sin. Of course not. That would never happen. Jesus points out the logical absurdity of all this to the Pharisees. He, he says, look, guys, this makes no sense whatsoever, your accusation. And he does so in a parable describing Satan in the light of three different realms. Now, you might read over that in the past, and you, and you read these words, and, they, and you don't focus on the realms that Jesus is talking about. But first, he says that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Now, this is the picture Jesus is painting. Imagine a king enthroned in power who, in order to win a war, slaughters half of his army, his own army. And then he takes the other half of his army and he sends them into exile. Now, may I ask you a very, very rhetorical question? Could that king ever hope to prosper in combat? Of course not. He would fail miserably. See, Jesus didn't come to conspire with Satan's kingdom. He came to disarm and destroy it. He came so he could personally plunder the weapons of sin and death away from the devil. And this is what John 3.38 says. It's such a clear statement. John tells us the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. See, he appeared on the scene back in Mark 1, preaching that the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. It's, it's arrived. And this was disastrous news for the kingdom of darkness. 
The unclean spirit in Mark 1, we talked about this. He knew this was disastrous news. He, his first question falls to his knees, acknowledges Jesus for who he is, and he says this, Have you come to destroy us? Because he knew if the Son of God had shown up, his destruction couldn't be very far behind. Second, Jesus says that a house divided against itself cannot stand. What picture is Jesus painting? Well, the idea here is that if you have a wealthy master of a house and the household servants and the children begin rebelling against the master of that house, the chaos will certainly ensue. Now, and the question here is that the master of the house would never deconstruct his own power structures. He would never free from bondage the people that, that are kept to him as ruler over their lives, the ones that are subject to him. He would never do that. It should seem obvious. But last, Jesus says, if Satan is divided against himself, he can't stand. And his influence will come to an end. I was thinking about this, and I hope at least a handful of you are old enough to get the reference. But I was thinking about this, and I thought of Barney Fife. You know, he, every time Andy let him load that bullet into his gun, he wound up shooting himself in the foot. And I think Jesus, in modern parlance, would say, the devil is not Barney Fife. He is not using my power to shoot himself in the foot. See, the the goal of the enemy is to be totally, and not just totally, but forever in charge of everything. To rule and to dominate and to humiliate. And so Jesus, now that he's established the absolute absurdity of what he's being accused of, he tells them a second parable. And it goes like this, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. So the idea here is, as I said in the Barney Fife reference, that Satan isn't schizophrenic, turning on himself. Instead, this is the beautiful thing that's happened that Jesus is painting the picture of. One who is stronger has entered his house, and now he has begun to plunder his goods. Jesus has come in completely unforeseen and unexpected by the devil and he's robbing him blind is what is what Jesus is is and 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 the 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 owner of the house the devil has no power he's been bound because Jesus is in charge see the strong man has been bound by the son of man and, and th- that is absolutely the meaning of the kingdom coming. It's the meaning of the cross. Satan is bound so that the gospel can be proclaimed. And Jesus has come as the one stronger to plunder the strong man. What does that mean for you? I mean, it sounds good. It might make a good worship song. But here's what that means. It means that he is coming to strip Satan of, of the power of accusation by justifying you with his very own blood. He is coming to strip him so that he can no longer use the weapon of fear of death against us. Having promised those who believe in his name eternal life. 
He has absolutely just robbed him of the guilt and shame wherewith he used to bludgeon us in our minds and our consciences. See, Satan is called the strong man here because left to ourselves, this may sound weird to tell you, but listen to me, left to ourselves, we should be intimidated by the devil. Martin Luther got this clearly when he wrote the lyrics to A Mighty Fortress is Our God. For so our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. See, some people talk very tough about the devil. And it's very, almost braggadociously, which, by the way, is pride. And they brag about how whenever he messes with their stuff, He's going to, they're going to bind him just with their words. They're going to bind, I'll bind you devil. But here's what I want you to see. See, I grew up in a church where we were always binding the devil. There was not a service, a Sunday, a Wednesday night that ever went by that we didn't bind the devil. But here's what I found out about the devil very early on. He's very good at untying knots because as soon as we bound him, we found him right back to his old tricks messing with people. He's a rascal that way. He just doesn't stay very bound. See, but here's the thing. This is what I want you to get. Scripture bears us out. You aren't the ones who bind the devil. You aren't. Jesus is the one who is stronger. Who in, he kicks down the door of the, of the strong man's house and he says, time's up, binds him. And he begins in the sight of the devil, starts robbing his house taking every every soul that he wants out of there, every lie, he destroys the power of it, every, every uh, deception, every pain, he just tears it down because he's the one that's stronger. Jesus said to his disciples, he said to them in John 10, 18, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. There it is, Mark. We've got to bind the devil. We've got to bind him. No, listen to verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Stop bragging that the spirits are subject to you. But listen to Jesus' encouragement. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Me and my bragging and binding and all that stuff that holds no weight, no power. But joy comes from Jesus's grace, which allowed me to escape from the clutches of the devil and protects me from him to this day. Man, I wish we could just go home right now. But after these two parables, Jesus issues one of the strongest warnings in the Bible to these fools who have attributed his miracles to the power of the devil. After dispelling this rumor that he's conspiring with Satan, he'll show them the cost of saying things like this. Pay close attention. Mark 3.28 Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but... Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. 
Why did he say this? For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, usually every time I've read this when I was younger, it freaked me out pretty bad. But I want you to notice something, that this message from Jesus, this warning, starts out with a glorious message about the boundless grace of God. Don't rush past that part. All sins will be forgiven. Whatever blasphemies they utter. What a promise. Man, what a promise to those of us who blaspheme the holiness of God often. Now, you may think, I'd never say things like the Pharisees said. I believe you. But how often do we utter careless words? Oh, my God. Just carelessly. Taking the name of Jesus Christ and turning that that name, which is above every other name, into a swear. How many of us will we'll use the name of God to damn people, situations, things that bother us. Mm. Carelessness. But I'm not just talking about cussing. In fact, I'm even more concerned that, of, about the thoughts that we have of God that are beneath the immeasurable dignity of His holiness. See, God's holiness demands to be regarded with dignity. Blasphemy, it's the act of insulting or showing contempt or a lack of reverence for God. And it's usually regarded as a verbal sin. It's it's regarded as something we say or write or think or the contemptuous ideas uh, that we form of God and that we embrace and believe. Blasphemy can be something as simple as, you know, because you've got this fancy education, you say Jesus couldn't possibly have been born of a virgin. It's impossible that dead men rise, so he couldn't have been physically resurrected. This is a blasphemy because those are contemptuous ideas of God. And when you hold those kinds of ideas, you are brazenly calling God a liar. Why? Because he said in his word those things are true. And you make him out to be less than divine. Matthew 12.32, though, in in Matthew's account of the same incident, he adds something that is really interesting. He says this, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, who's the Son of Man? Jesus. Whoever speaks the word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. So those who curse the Son or think lesser things about Him can be forgiven when the truth is revealed, when the Holy Spirit convicts their heart and they repent and believe. Thank goodness. And I'm telling you, in my career as a sinner, I have thought terrible things about Jesus. I've thought things that were so, as I said earlier, beneath his dignity that I I should be burning in hell right now because of my, my absolute contempt that I've demonstrated for Jesus. See, none of us has perfect ideas of Jesus from day one. 
We may think we can be indifferent to him, that he isn't relevant to us. We may think his story is fictional or that he isn't really fully God or is he really isn't fully man. We may think that he isn't powerful enough to help us escape the grip of sin or worse. We might think he's powerful enough to help us because we're so holy, but not that guy. But for all these things, the Holy Spirit can bring conviction unto repentance and we can be freed from our false assumptions and come to know Jesus, who we once despised as both Savior and Lord. Now, up to this point, isn't that great news? Uh, Isn't it? Didn't you, haven't you said things in the light of Jesus saying this that you wish you'd never said? Haven't you thought things in the light of what Jesus said that you wish you'd never thought? Haven't you had attitudes about Jesus and his people that you know have the potential to mark you as guilty for all eternity? And yet Jesus says all sin will be forgiven. Every blasphemy they utter will be forgiven. And this is why, because we've got to get to the next part of this, this is why Jesus' warning after this promise is so chilling. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Now, this seems odd. Blaspheme the Son, I'll forgive you for that. Blaspheme the Spirit, no way. Not going to give you forgiveness. What does this mean? Does this mean that the Spirit of God is somehow more holy and spiritual than the Son of God and more off-limits than the Son of God because of His holiness? No, not at all. In fact, the good doctrine of the Trinity teaches that all the persons of the Godhead are co-equal, co-essential, co-eternal, sharing perfect holiness. There's no lack in any of them or no excess in another one. And so over the years, as most pastors would say, I've had... Many people ask me over the years and, and come sometimes with great emotion if they might have possibly committed the unpardonable sin with honestly no concept whatsoever of what that truly means. And I tell them this, hopefully by way of encouragement, that the fear of having committed the unpardonable sin is the best evidence you have that you haven't actually committed the unpardonable sin. And this is because... That no one at all can seek for, can seek God, can regret sin, can feel convicted of sin, and repent except by the assistance of the Holy Spirit. If He is still making you feel the weight of your sin, and you're fearing the impact of this worst sin, you certainly aren't guilty of having committed it, or you would feel nothing. You would be hard as steel and impenetrable by any emotional appeal, appeal of the gospel. It wouldn't bother you one bit. See, the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit means this. It means that you've taken the very things that God has used to display His goodness and you've called them by heart, by attitude, by words. You've called them evil. You've called them inconvenient. You've called them tiresome or irrelevant or foolish and if you persist in that stubborn thinking you will arrive at the place where there is no forgiveness for you and i'm not telling you this so you can say whoo i haven't forget it for uh you know i uh, committed i can just go on to normal sins you're missing the point entirely 
You're missing the point in time. And by the way, what is a normal sin? See, you don't fail to find forgiveness because you reach some limit to God's grace. There's not some, some red line that you cross and He cuts you off and forsakes you. But here's the deal. You are fully responsible for your unpardonable condition because you have willingly hardened your heart just like Pharaoh through your resistance to God's Holy Spirit. You have said no so many times that your heart is stone cold hard. And see what I want to put it to you is like this. First... You would not repent of your sin and believe. And now you find yourself in the pitiable condition where you cannot repent and believe. And that's a scary, scary, scary place to be. Jesus says that such people will be guilty of an eternal sin. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you what I think it means. This is is one of those debatable things from different people. Eternal sin. It, see, th- it means that, that that every time we sin, we build up resistance to God, and we actually it's it's echoed in our fallenness by hatred for God. Choosing sin is an act of rebellion against God. So, when th- I think this means that your resistance to God, your your persistent resistance to God, will result in greater hatred of God. And As your torment in hell increases, God's just punishment of your sin, you will continue to increase in your hate and resentment toward God all the more. Eternal sin. It's a vicious cycle. Your compounded sin will demand compounded punishment as you are tormented for all eternity in this vicious cycle where your heart will never soften but become more rebellious, more angry, more stubborn, more bitter, more corrupted. See, a lot of people think that they're going to spend their time in hell weeping and regretting all of the, uh, the, the missed opportunities. No. No. The same God you hated and resisted and had no time for on earth, you will hate even worse. You will resist even worse. You will reject even worse. And and you will spend all eternity, yes, in torment, yes, in actual conscious physical torment, but you will spend the rest of eternity in total immersive rage at the God who dared to judge you. And how can you ever have forgiveness in a state like that? Jesus warns these men that make the silly accusation of the high-stakes game they're playing with their souls. Is anyone here playing that game? Are you critiquing Christ? Or are you believing Him? Are you slandering Him or are you following Him? Are you with your life, with your words, with your thoughts, submitting to Him, or are you holding Him in contempt with your thoughts and your words? Beware. Beware. Your freedom to respond to His grace will soon evaporate, and you will suffer an indescribably wretched eternity. Now, some of you boldly imagine that you could never be guilty of such contempt. Perhaps so, and praise God for it. I hope that's true. But see, as I pointed out at the beginning, our text shows another group of people who also gave vent to their unbelief. And surprisingly, it wasn't 
Pharisees and scribes, it was Jesus' own mother and his brothers. The ones that had every reason to believe. John tells us that even some of his brothers didn't believe in him. See, they'd heard that he was so busy with his odd new ministry that he wasn't even stopping to eat. They also heard that he was taunting the Jewish authorities and that they, in response, were now conspiring to kill him. Assuming that he'd gone completely nuts, that's what the text says, his family set out from Nazareth to take him to rehab by force. Well, lock him up in a straitjacket and maybe he'll come to his senses. And when they arrived at the end of the text that Raven read to us, Jesus was inside the house preaching as always, just pouring out truth and gospel realities on the people that were listening to him. But they had come and they had urgent business. This is serious. Jesus is not eating. People are trying to kill him. We're concerned about him. And so they somehow, I don't know how this happened. Ginger and I were talking about this in relation to if somebody came up to me and said, hey, well, I'm in the middle of a message and said, hey, your mom's in the foyer. She wants to talk to you right now. That's what happened to Jesus. They wouldn't even come in, but they send somebody. Jesus is probably, I imagine Jesus is, well, of course, Jesus is the greatest preacher that ever lived. He's in the middle of a passionate point. Somebody taps him on the shoulder. Sorry, Jesus, sorry to bother you. But your mom's outside. She wants to talk to you. Can you imagine the absurdity of that? They were concerned for him, so they, they get this guy to interrupt Jesus' sermon so he would come out and talk to them about their many concerns. So important, Jesus, we've got to talk to you right now. But here's the deal. Jesus didn't budge. <laughs> Can you imagine? I don't know what kind of house you grew up in. If my mama says, come here, and I say, nah. I don't care if I am 30 to 33 years old. Man, that could carry some weight. Jesus doesn't budge. It was, in fact, what he does in the middle of that group he's teaching, he looks around at everyone listening intently to him, and he says something simply astonishing. And still encouraging to us 2,000 years later, he says, Who are my brother, mother and brothers? Who are they? He said, Here, this, this, here they are. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, he's my sister, he's my mother. What is Jesus saying? See, unbelief doesn't only happen when people accuse Jesus of being guided by devils, but when we question him, when we try to control the way he runs his own kingdom. See, we're called to surrender to his rule, not to redirect, redefine, or reimagine it. His family demanded him on their terms. And they demanded him on their own terms from the outside when they should have entered into his teaching and learned silently from him. It was pride that kept him from coming in the the house. Now listen, don't misunderstand this text. Jesus never rejected or repudiated his earthly family. He loved his mother. On the cross, he made sure she'd be taken care of after his ascension. He he loved his brothers. Two of them wrote books of the New Testament. They came to believe. But his statement here about who is his family makes clear that unbelief, or I'm sorry, that belief, as opposed to unbelief, establishes 
a relationship that is much more durable than even blood relations. It establishes a family that is even more eternal. See, it's those who do the will of God that are truly the family of Christ. John 6, 28, I love this. Jesus is, is teaching my favorite sermon in the book of John. And he says, and then they said to him, the crowd that was with him said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now listen to this. It's so beautiful. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe that you believe, that you believe in him whom he has sent. See, believing is the summation of the Christian life, and unbelief is the fuel of spiritual death and the beginning of eternal torment. Let's pray. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you and we confess that we can be guilty of all manner of unbelief. What I've called soft unbelief and even at times in our lives, maybe for some of us even right now, of the most brazen forms of unbelief. God, we pray that you would expose that in us. And Lord, before our hearts are hardened, before we go too far in our own wickedness and rebellion against you, Will you just soften us and prepare us by your Holy Spirit to receive the grace of God that is offered to us. Help us to know you as the one who, God, is closer to us than any brother, any mother, any father. Help us to know you that way, Lord. And we do that by believing in you. That's the work of God. We do that by doing the will of God. So, Lord, help us, guide us, take us by the hand, and lead us to the cross. Help us to forsake all of our personally formed ideas of you and trust that every word of God is true. Let God be true and every man a liar. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Put your hands in a receiving position. I'm going to read you this fantastic benediction from John chapter 1. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You are dismissed.